0: You're listening to the Ultimate Game Faces Podcast with your host, Rich Key, delivering insight into the fascinating life stories of his featured guests.
1: I'm pleased to have Jerry Royce as our guest today. 22 years in the majors, two-time All-Star, 1981 World Series champion, and the proud owner of a no-hitter in 1980. Well, Jerry... Welcome to the show.
0: Well, Rich, straight great to be here.
1: We've got a ton of things we could talk about. This gentleman that is spending some time with me today it only put in 22 years in the game. I'd like to be able to talk about baseball. Also, the fact that I'm very fortunate to have been around your company during those Dodger years. Also, we'd like to pay a visit to uh, your passion for bass, uh, for music. And the stories behind the music. And I'd like to be able to cover that today.
0: Yeah, we got that. We got photography. We got music. We got baseball and well, world events. So let's get rolling.
1: I want to talk about your intensity. There's two games that come to mind with, well, actually there's a third, which is the obvious, the no hitter and in 1980. But I'd like to talk for a moment here about the two games, one that I think I I may have heard you refer to. As one of your most exciting games and proud was game five, um, against the Yankees in 1981. And that game turned uh, around the fifth, sixth inning and that, that whole series actually turned and you knew that you had a ring in sight at that point. And for folks that don't know, I was the Dodger team photographer. So I was able to watch. This play out in front of me and record a special part of Dodger history. And Jerry, you were one of the main uh, principal players in that in that exciting moment. I thought that your most intense game that I witnessed was the year prior in 1980. And that was the game against the um, was that game five? of the Houston Astros the weekend. I think it was a Saturday. It was a game four then that tied up the series, correct? Uh,
0: let's see. In 1980, we had to win three games in order to have a playoff.
1: Right. And I and-
0: believe I pitched on Saturday. And if I remember correctly, we were three games out of three games to play. So in order to get to the playoffs, we had to defeat Houston three games in a row. And then have the playoff
1: on Monday afternoon. Right. And unfortunately we didn't pull it off on that Monday afternoon, but up against the wall on, on that weekend having to win and come back and tie it and then and you folks did. But that was one of the most intense weekends in Dodger baseball that I've ever seen at Dodger Stadium. How do you feel about those two games compared with do you believe that your Yankee World Series game was a highlight aside, aside from the no-hitter?
0: Oh, yeah. Look, those are two top games right there because there was a lot of emotion involved and there was a lot at stake. When you're fighting for a pennant and it comes down to the final weekend and you have to win a ball game, well, that's it, as exciting as you can get. There's no question about it. It's something from the time you are a kid playing lonely ball that you dream of having the opportunity to play in a game like that and fortunately I was on the good side where we did win we were behind going into Sunday we won that game and then we were all tied up with Houston for the playoff game at Dodger Stadium for Monday as to who would represent the National League West but the Astros on Monday were just a different team they came out and put some runs on the board had enough solid pitching and as a result They were the ones that represented the National League West in the playoffs against the Phillies in 1980, while the rest of us just went home. So there's the ups and downs of baseball. But fortunately, the next year, we got in pretty much the same kind of position, although it was different, against the Houston Ball Club. And we lost the first two games of the playoffs, the division playoffs, first time baseball ever had this. And... Then we had to win three in a row at Dodger Stadium. And we knew from the previous year that we could do this against pretty much the same Houston ball club. Well, we did that. We defeated Houston this time. Three games to two to advance to the uh, National League Championship Series. And from there, we went on to the World Series. And we'll we'll get into that as we continue the conversation. But that was one of the most exciting games I've
1: I'll always remember without... Getting deep into it, but you just mentioned fell behind with Montreal, fell behind against Houston, and then we get into the World Series against the Yankees and fall two behind. And Lasorda now claims I had them right where I wanted them. <laughs> so typical, Tommy. You put the best possible spin on it. That playoff game, Game Four, you went against Nolan Ryan, two to one win. Did you have? In your career, and I believe it would be natural, I mean, I know you are dedicated each and every game that you take that mound uh, and pour your so- heart and soul into it. How do you feel when you're facing an extraordinary pitcher that you're going up against? Do you treat it just like any other game? Because you know you have to deal with the batters. What type of extra satisfaction do you get or drive if you are being pitched and matched up against an iconic player like Nolan Ryan?
0: Well, I know it's going up against one of the best in the game in the future Hall of Famer. But you can't let anything like that enter into your thinking because that becomes a peripheral opponent. That's something that your mind focuses on and takes away where it should be and that is on the next pitch that you're about to throw. But you know it's going to be tough. It's going to be a tough game with any of any of the starting pitchers that Houston had that year. So going up against Ryan in that particular ballgame, I was fortunate that we got a run early and then broke things open, and I had a 4-0 lead going into the ninth
1: inning, and that made things a whole lot easier. Jerry, let's start from the beginning. You, uh, you had a very good high school career in basketball. Did you ever give thought to that, to uh, concentrate on basketball?
0: Oh, yeah, my focus on basketball was my backup plan. You see, in high school, my concern at that time was getting to college. I had a brother who was six years older, and, well, the funds were kind of depleted when it came to me and my younger brother just two years behind me. So it was up to one of us to get a scholarship. And my mom pulled me aside one day and said, you know, you've got the ability with both sports and with your academics to get a scholarship and we hope you pursue that so that we can send both of you to school. And I said, you know, that's what I've been thinking about. And basketball was going to be my ticket to college if I couldn't sign a baseball contract. But fortunately for me, things worked out that I was drafted by the Cardinals and they made an offer that was enough to make me turn down a college scholarship and signed to become a pro right after my 18th birthday. Though it's been presented to me, did you make the right decision? Or at that time, how do you know what the right decision is? Well, looking back on it, I had nothing to lose. Both were good decisions. It was just a question of how I wanted to plan my path to my future. And since it was baseball that I wanted to play, I signed the contract and tried to pick up school in the off-season when I could.
1: You signed that contract um, that St. Louis offered you. You went to the minors, and by most standards, it was a very short transition to the major leagues. And you wound up, if I'm not mistaken, your first game in uniform for the St. Louis Cardinals was at Jerry Park in Montreal. Is that correct?
0: Oh, that's right. You know, what's interesting about that is – One has to take a look at the factors that sped me through the minor leagues. First of all, I signed and did well in in Class A ball, well enough to go to AAA at 18 just for a week to be around or to be under the tutelage of the manager Warren Spahn Hall of Fame left hander. The next year, to keep my school deferment, I spent the entire semester or two semesters the year of 67 and 68 at Southern Illinois University and missed half the season, but I realized that if I was going to advance, I would have to play the whole season, or else I was going to fall behind. So I enlisted in the Army Reserve, and that pushed school another notch behind, because then the focus became baseball, and then making my reserve meetings. So I did get a full year in 1969, and remember, it was expansion, and the Cardinals with two years, consecutive years in the World Series, they won in 67. They had a lot of top prospects in the minor league, so an expansion rolled around. A lot of those guys found jobs with either San Diego or Montreal, and that put me a year ahead of where I normally would have been, another year in double-A in the year of 1969. But instead, I pitched in triple-A, and as a result of pitching the whole season, I led the league in a couple of categories, some of them good, some of them well, not so good. For instance, I led the league in innings pitch and in victories. But I also led the league in walks and wild pitches. So you take a look, you balance it out. It's a solid season as far as production in the minor leagues, as far as the Cardinals were concerned, because their club in 69, though it finished 12 games over 500, it wasn't good enough. And a number of the players, well, they were going to leave in the offseason in an effort for the club to get younger. So that put me in a position to make it to the big leagues before a lot of people in the class that I was in at 67 making it to the big leagues. But all told, 27 months after I signed my contract, I pitched my first big league game. So that's not bad going from high school two years later to pitching your first major league game at the age
1: of 20. During those 27 months, was there anybody in particular that made a big impact on you that helped make that a quick transition into the majors?
0: Um, I'm sure there were a lot of people, but there were subtle little things that I had to learn going through the minor leagues, the day-to-day uh, grind, how to prepare yourself for a ball game, how to prepare yourself for a long season. Up until 1969, I've never thrown up more than 100 innings in one year. In that particular year, I threw 186. So with that kind of workload, one has to learn how to make their way and, and, and save yourself for the entire season, yet go all out when you pitch your games. So that was the first full season. And with the travel in the Pacific Coast League, that's always tough. So that kind of grind, well, it's, uh, it's a learning experience, but that's just in the day-to-day living in the minor leagues. As far as the instruction, well, Warren Spahn was there. We had a lot of conversations, but at 20 years old, talking to somebody who was a Hall of Famer and who did things, very few people in the major leagues ever did, there was a, a bit of a communication, I wouldn't say problem, but a bit of understanding on my part because I never had the experience at that age to relate to all that he was saying. Years later, when we had a chance to have lunch and we talked about some of those things, I understood at that point what he was talking about. Mm -hmm. But at 20 years old, well, it became a bit of a learning experience. But I would say at that point, probably Warren and my high school coach and George Kissel, the minor league coach for – the Cardinals, all probably had the biggest effect on me of, of anybody. Well, i got to throw in the American Legion coach while I'm at it because all of them had the biggest impact on me through the point when I got to the big leagues in 1969.
1: Did you have any type of um, friendship that carried on from those years? I, ha- I have to imagine these gentlemen were extremely proud of your success and followed you closely. Well,
0: yeah, I, we kept touch. We kept in touch. Uh, of course, Tommy, uh, he stayed with Tulsa, and he realized there was a ceiling with the Cardinals. He had hoped he could get a major league job managing, and when that didn't happen, well, he decided it, and there were people, managers from the bottom part of the Cardinal organization pushing their way upward. He felt the squeeze, and he moved on. George Kissel, he stayed with the Cardinal organization it seems like forever. I think between him and Red, Red Chinese, they probably have well over 125 years of, of uh, baseball experience between them. both have passed on, and my high school coach is the only one who's still alive, and and we still have conversations. So it was a solid friendship, a coach to player, and now man to man. So it's something that's a special relationship. It's something that's still ongoing.
1: Jerry, you were a fan favorite. Perhaps it was your personality, your intensity, but you had a very good relationship with your fans. At least I saw that at Dodger Stadium throughout the years. And with that being said, that relationship continues after your playing career, and you're very active on social media, involved with the fans. Does the current situation now make you think of how does that impact a ball player and to what degree for this season under the pandemic that we're looking at no fan interaction. How would you feel like if you were playing today? How would you adjust? There's, there's no added support when you're walking out to a ball game to start. It's kind of sterile. Well, you know, I had this
0: conversation. I had it recently with somebody – and I can't remember exactly who, but I said, there's two reasons why I couldn't play in today's game. And he looked at me and he said, well, why? Because you've always talked about your ability to adjust. You don't think you could have adjusted from the time you played until now? And I said, well, that part of it, I could have. The part I couldn't do right now is and couldn't handle is the fact that I'm 71 years old and I have an arc in my fastball. <laughs> uh, this, The second part, if I were pitching today, even if I could get somebody out, I'd have to call timeout every five minutes to pee.
1: (laughs) What I'd like to be able to share with a fan is something that they're not typically privy to, Jerry, and that would be an aspect of the game that what would go on, let's say, for instance, on the pitching mound, and you have a manager that comes out to you, would you know, at that moment, without them even reaching the mound, that you were either in the game or you had a chance to talk yourself to stay in the uh, game?
0: If uh, if the manager came out, chances are I, I was uh, – if he was coming out to the mound, that meant I was coming out of the
1: game. Okay. So
0: uh, when a pitching coach came out, uh, unless he was the one who was supposed to make the change – well, and the only place that I played where that happened was with Danny Murtaugh in Pittsburgh. He sent the pitching coach out to make a pitching change. But when the manager came out, it was a sign that your work was usually finished, with one or two exceptions. Uh, one exception was with uh, the Dodgers, and I saw Tom sorta coming out of the ball game, and I was struggling, I'll be honest with you, the wheels kind of came off the wagon when I had an error behind me and one or two scored, but... He was determined to make a pitching change. But I stopped him before he got to the mound. And I told him, I said, Tom, don't say a word. Just listen to what I have to say. So he put his arms on, on that stomach of his and tried to get onto the mound. But I stopped him right there. And I said, I know by virtue of the fact that you came out here, you want to take me out of this ballgame. He goes, that's right. And I said, but I want to stay in because I believe I've got enough stuff left to get these guys out right now. And I know we're going to score some runs in the next half of the inning. And to my surprise, he said, all right. He says, what do you propose? I said, let's take a vote. And he says, a vote? I said, yeah. You want to vote to take me out? I want to vote to stay in. Yeager, Steve Yeager, who was the catcher, I said, let's let him make the deciding vote. And so it was sort of when Yeager got out there, Yeager used to walk out there and wear his mask. And finally, Tommy looks at him and he says, all right. Jaeger, here's what we're going to do. Jaeger pulled off his mask. He said, we're going to have a vote here. He wants to have a vote. I vote to take him out. He votes to stay in. Now, you're going to cast the deciding vote. What do you say? Well, Jaeger looked at Tommy. He looked at me. He looked back at Tommy and he said, you should have taken him out two innings ago.
1: (laughs) That's Jaeger. That's
0: (laughs) Jaeger. He was blunt and he was right to the point. So I had my say and that was it. And Sort of looked at me and said, "Anything else?"
1: And I said, "No, that's it." Does a pitcher in your position talk to a manager or a pitching coach before a game or during a game, uh, especially when you're getting deep into the game? Do you have any interaction with that pitching coach and said, "Look, I've got an inning left in me. I I may have two more innings." Uh, is there a game a, a trust factor there where your coach knows what you have left in the tank and so that's already established before you go out for the next inning?
0: Rarely. There were times I said, you know, when I was asked, how you feeling? I said, I'm close to the end. I think I got one, I got an inning left, and we'll see how I feel after that. So it was inning by inning. And if the situation came up where it was a strategic point of the game and the manager had to make the call based on what he saw, well, that decision is his, and it's always his. Uh, The only manager that I played for who pulled me aside and said, look, we're not going to win here with you. We're not going to win here without you. This was Jim Frodosi in 1988 with Chicago White Sox. Uh, We were a last place team. And uh, he told me, he says, look, I need six innings. Give me six innings every ball game. I can mix and match until we get to Bobby Fickman, who uh, one season had 57 saves. So, it was a pretty good bet that Ben when he came in the game, was able to shut down the opposition. So you figure out if you can go six, that's great. If you can go more than that, just be honest with me at the end of every inning and tell me what you got. But at that point, I'd already had 18 years in the major leagues. I was 38 years old, and the team wasn't going anywhere. And it was Fergosi who believed that at least one game we had a chance to compete because he had some horses in there that could win a ballgame. So that was the only time in my career where I was given a say-so as to what I could do or couldn't do.
1: How does it feel to a veteran pitcher that you find out come July that your team is out of the race, doesn't have a chance? What's the remaining months of that baseball season like for, for you in, in that case?
0: You know, the only time I was with a club that was really out of things early was, was with the White Sox. Uh, the Angels of 87 struggled and uh, they still had a chance, but really fizzled in mid August. So the last six weeks was a bit of a scramble to try to figure out what they wanted to do for next year. But with the, with the White Sox in 1988, I saw it from the start of the season. And in July, right before the All-Star break, guys were talking about playing at Winter Ball. And that kind of surprised me because i never heard that talk before. Uh, the teams that I played on, everybody in the starting lineup, everybody that was a starting pitcher, and a lot of guys in the bullpen, they were going to get their work in. They were going to get their time. They were going to get their innings. They were going to get their at-bats. So Winter Ball was never a factor. But with a young team and guys knowing that uh, the the postseason wasn't a possibility, they started planning things out, trying to figure out which team that they were going to play for. And I walked over to one or two of them and I said, that's not the way you've got to approach this. You don't talk about this here. You've got a game to play tonight. And that game you play tonight is the most important game of your life. Right. So play that game tonight and then tomorrow, the most important game of your life is that game. And then you'll eventually get to the point to where you can start thinking about winter ball. But it's not fair to you or your teammates for you to start thinking about your winter job.
1: You played for, was it eight major league teams? Eight different teams and Pittsburgh twice. During that your career, if there was a transition made, a trade, were you ever aware of it as a ball player? Does ball players actually know that? they're being moved or they're being looked at by another club? Or is it total surprise that a trade has been announced and you know about it at that point?
0: Well, sometimes you do, sometimes you don't. Uh, Every trade is different. I once asked the general manager how a trade comes about. And he said, some take up to a year to try to do, to try to pull off because you got to get the right combination of people and you got to try to find the right club. To, so that you can fill your needs and you can take care of what the other club needs at that particular time. Uh, other times, they materialize much like a thunderstorm, and suddenly all the factors are there. We need somebody right here. For instance, if somebody gets injured and you need an everyday player, you look around, uh, you probably go to the waiver wire if you're a general manager, see who somebody's putting out there, and make that phone call. You have something we could use right now. What do you need in return? And you you shuffle the deck and figure out what names fall out, and boom, you have a trade. And some of these things can materialize in minutes. So as far as the player's concerned, I imagine uh, you read some of the warning signs as to as to what your future is, and you got a pretty good guess as to where you stand as far as your club's concerned, and, and then riders We'll get information. I don't know how they do it. And they bring it to you and you say, what do you think about the possibility of this? Because you're being rumored to go here or to go there. Uh, it's a nerve wracking kind of thing because you sure don't need that on your mind while you're out there uh, trying to perform at your best. And someone says this could be your last appearance in this uniform. It's a tough way to be. It's a tough, um, tough way to do your job.
1: Your first stay uh, with the Pirates ended with a trade to the Dodgers. Do you recall whether or not you were aware of that, or was that a surprise? I believe you were traded essentially for Rick Roden. Was that the case?
0: That was in April of 1979. Yeah, I had, had a conversation with Harding Peterson, the general manager of the Pirates. Uh, the preceding year, 78, at the at the trading deadline, he tried to deal me to the Cubs, but I had a no-trade contract. And the Cubs and Pirates needed my approval. Now, that contract, that was at the start of long-term contracts. And these things got a little complicated because of some of the things that were put in these contracts. And I remember that my contract took months to put together to agree to the language. And it went back and forth before it was finally agreed upon. And one of the things that I asked for in that contract was a no-trade so that I could finally stay in one place because they told me that I was a big part of the future of that organization. So when they tried to trade me and tried to do it and pull the rug out from under me, I said, wait, a minute. You, you just told me a short time ago that I'm an integral part of your future. And now you're trying to make a deal. And they said, well, this is baseball. And that kind of took uh, all of the emotion and all of the good feelings that you have toward an organization. Well, you just have to forget them at that point. And I said, I took this no trade as in lieu of salary because the Pirates at that time, uh, they weren't drawing particularly well and they didn't have the money in the coffers. So my agent proposed that if you'll pay me whatever compensation, what the compensation at that time I feel was right, then I'll approve the deal. Pirates wouldn't do it. We turned to the Cubs and said, are you interested? And they said no then we won't make the deal. So that closed the book on that. But at the end of the year, I won three games down the stretch and became a starter again and appeared to fit in their plans. So when spring training rolled around, Chuck Tanner put me in the rotation with Blylevin. And I was okay with me because we're just getting our beginnings in in the first couple of five games. Blylevin went three, I went two. And immediately I saw the warning signs here. I said, something's not going right here. So the next time we were scheduled to pitch, Y11 was scheduled for four, which is the way that it should be done you increase your innings. But I was uh, still scheduled to go two. So I sat down with Chuck, and I asked him, I said, what's going on here? You had told me when we had a conversation at the end of last year that I was going to be considered for the starting rotation. He says, that was then. This is now what I'm trying to do is prepare for the season. But I'll tell you, you're going to get enough innings in. And I said, Chuck, I don't like the way this is going. I understand what you're saying. I said, but I see already just when in the first week of games where this is going. So let's get Pete in here and we'll have a conversation about what your future is and what mine is. And it was at that point I told Pete Harvey Peterson, I said, look, I don't like the way this is going, but there's a deal out there that you can make. Let's make it. And so within a week, you we had to deal with the Dodgers. And said there's a couple of things the Dodgers want from you. Uh, they're not going to pay you any money, but they want to extend your contract. And here's the deal. Well, I took a look at the deal, talked it over with my agent, and I said, this is too good of a deal to pass up. So I waived the no trade and became a Dodger in April of 1979.
1: I actually remember that day because I photographed you that the first day that you showed up, we needed some head and shoulders for publicity purposes and so forth. But prior to you showing up, I'll always remember Nobi Kawano in the clubhouse, the equipment and clubhouse manager, and he says, Rich, you're going to like Jerry. He's got a intense passion for the game, but he has a sense of humor. And Nobody knew my sense of humor, and so I was more than happy to have you on board and and be able to work with you. And and I've always felt that way from day one, and still do. So uh, that well, was that was something I always remember.
0: Well, I appreciate that. Uh, so you took the first picture of me in a Dodger uniform.
1: Yes. Yep. We, so
0: you 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 had the capture then that smile that had me from ear to ear. <laughs> and
1: because it was it was. I was
0: I was a happy camper, knowing you, that I was uh, I was going to a place that, first of all, didn't have AstroTurf, and it was the best ballpark in all of baseball at that time. So I was happy, and I knew I was going to get a fresh opportunity. I wasn't immediately in the starting rotation, but eventually worked my way into it. So for me, it was a new beginning.
1: You mentioned AstroTurf. Did you despise that? I mean, you talk about something that's a headwind against a – uh pitcher has got to be astroturf
0: well uh, the defense makes adjustments to that and uh, it works the same for both sides if you're that kind of hitter if you're if you're a team that chops down on the ball that has speed guys like the Cardinals of those years did uh, you put it to your advantage but if you were a power hitting team like the Reds were well, the Reds had some guys who could run too so they they were they were multifaceted Dodgers were somewhat the same way. A couple of guys who could steal bases and still did for power. Uh, But the important thing about AstroTurf is that not only was it fast in the infield, but outfielders had to play a little deeper and keep that ball from skipping on the turf and hitting the wall. So there were adjustments that had to be made. Now, as far as me pitching on the field with AstroTurf, I didn't really touch the turf while I worked. I was on the mound, and that was usually – that was always dirt. So for me, I didn't have to deal with um, the hot feet that players had wearing spikes on the turf in an afternoon game in July and August in the Midwest. That that was a monster until they made shoes that would adjust to that. So, guys, that was the advent of turf shoes. I remember Lou Brock with the Cardinals, one of those first years of turf, and they he wore spikes in the outfield. When he came in after the inning, I think it was 125 degrees on that turf, he came in, took off his shoes and socks, and you could see burn
1: marks in the soles of his feet. Wow. And Lou uh,
0: worked with Converse, and they developed a special shoe for him. He wore soccer shoes for a long period of time. And then when he came to, when it was his turn to hit, he put on baseball shoes. But on defense, he wore soccer shoes. Now, within a matter of a couple of years, uh, guys were making adjustments on the turf with soccer shoes until they came up with a, those little small butted soles on the turf shoes. And uh,
1: that saved a lot of guys' feet. Jerry, you were labeled as a prankster. You never ran away from that uh, label. And tell me, I've got a, an opinion on this, and maybe it's negative, but I always felt any ball player that had a sense of humor that was that was their way of dealing with an overload of stress that's put on them in that role as a major league ball player. Uh, am I close on that with you? No,
0: you're right on top of it. They're, as far as I'm concerned, getting to the big leagues is a tough job. There are a lot of guys who have aspirations from the time they're kids and they see that the, the light at the end of the tunnel. They may sign a contract and go to the minor leagues, but never really advance to the big league level. And then there are guys who do get into the big leagues and realize once they're there that they have an even tougher job, and that is to stay there. You've got to perform. You've got to put out because this team, any team, has a general manager that every day wants to put the best 25 players in the organization that he has available for that night's ball game. And the pressure to perform is immense, especially for a lot of young guys who come in there they have a bad game and they'll sit again for a week. There were guys when, in the years that I coached were called up to the big leagues. As a starting pitcher, they had done a good job. And when they got to the big leagues, they were put in the bullpen. And they were a mop-up of the guy. And they stayed there two weeks while the guy they were replacing was on the disabled list. So when he got back to me – I saw a guy that sat for two weeks, and I had to start all over again with him, building back up his innings. Plus, I had to deal with his ego because he went up there, didn't do the job that he hoped he would, and he never knew if he was going to get another look. So those are a lot of the pressures that guys deal with on a daily basis. Even if you're a veteran ball player and you can see the signs coming that the team wants to get a little younger or they have a top prospect. And so there's a squeeze at the top, and you might be the guy heading somewhere else. All of these things are factored into the stress that someone at the top level has to deal with on a, on a daily level. And because of that, guys turn to external measures in an effort to alleviate that pressure. Uh, a lot of times, guys turn to drink. I know some guys turn to drugs and drink. Other guys have other problems as well. A lot of guys overate. Gosh, what other kinds of problems? Some guys got religion. They went the other way, and suddenly, you know, it was Bible study, and they went to Bible study and church in a number of different ways. But for me, uh, the stress was alleviated by laughing a lot. Uh, I didn't, I didn't brandish that particular title of being a prankster as much as I did uh, being a competitor, but. I was one or the other. It depends on where I was in the starting rotation. On the days that I pitched, well, you turn that off and you become the competitor, and then you get after it. The other four days, you, you can relax a little bit, but you got to alleviate the stress in preparing for your next start and dealing with whatever happened in the previous start. So uh, it's the day-to-day pressures. Guys, it, it's still that way now, and I'm sure that it's that way, in other jobs as well, you're always dealing with something, some change, or something that's coming along that doesn't pertain to what's actually happened on the field or with your job in particular.
1: For those that are not lucky enough to have been around the game, they won't understand, but perhaps you'll agree with me, Jerry. There is a special kind of sarcasm, sense of humor that is present in baseball. And the, and, and those folks that are involved in it. And first you, in order to deal with it, you have to grow very, very thick skin and they expect to tease you. They expect you to come back at them. And I just, that stands out in my experience with, uh, the, the Dodger time in that period of my life. It was fantastic. You, you <laughs> teased, you had a great time with each other and you moved on, but nobody took it serious. I knew twice a year I would have to do head-and-shoulder portraits. And the goal was for me to, to get everybody done, shot in one session. That never happened because there was a Jerry Royce, there was a Jay Johnstone, or there was a Don Stanhouse. And you often would come in along with the other guys. And never did we ever get close to doing a head and shoulder legitimate shot for, for public relations. It just, that was the case. We, we eventually got it done, but we had special fun memories of clowning around and having a good time. And that is what I took from the game was, you know, the, the, the friendships were unbelievable and it didn't matter who the player was. They could have been a big headliner or they could be somebody that was a utility person, but those relationships are, they're in the, they're priceless. And I hope you feel the same way with the players and the people that you spent time around, but oh, there yeah. was that element of having a good time was such a big relief under a stressful situation. I would be the first to, to back up what you said. You managed it extremely well because. You were always quick to have fun and tease and have a good time uh at somebody else's expense. But if you were pitching that day, you walked on the other side of that clubhouse floor around you because we all knew how competitive you were and respected that.
0: It was just my way of dealing with baseball as a way of life. So that, that's what I had to do. Now, as far as, as the fun we had – taking the pictures, you wouldn't have half the stories if we did these things legitimately. You would sit there and or, or talk to people and say, yeah, the guys came in, everybody was nice, they sat there, they smiled, they were clean, and we got it done. We did it in a half hour, 40 minutes. There's no story there. Nobody cares about that. They want to hear the stories about the crazy things that happened, the photo bombing. Yeah, We had right. a few photo bombs or we had some distractions while somebody was getting their picture taken while we stood behind you. So you've got some pictures and, you know, those fake smiles that you see in a lot of the pictures, those are usually the ones that are published. But the ones I think that everybody would like to see would be the outtakes. Those are the ones that you don't even show them to the people with the Dodgers. They, because if you show them, they're just going to shake their head and say, how can these guys be this way? No, those are the ones when your slides come back and you choose the best of what you got. You say, I think this one will work, this one will work, this one will work. And then the PR people say, oh, Thank you very much, Rick. Rich, that's a good job. But you got the other things you go, Oh my God, look at this thing. And you got guys laughing or, or scratching themselves in a way that you just can't put in a, in a PR picture. Those are some fun times. And it's not always the games that we Times it was always a, it seemed a lot of times when something else was going on and uh, it was just one of those moments that you capture you can't plan it it just seemed to happen and photo time used used to be one of the best times of all you know by the way I think I still have some of your photos
1: well that's a compliment Jerry no, I
0: kept, you know a lot of times I, you know, I don't know what happened to them. Uh, I don't know, you might have given me a few of them because there were a couple, I was always looking for the photographers. I said, if you got something good that the club is going to use, you can set it aside. I appreciate that. You know, and with enough teams and enough photographers, as as well as the stringers who work for tops and baseball cards, uh, I've been able to accumulate pretty much a, a, a collection of pictures that describe my career. And I'm always on the lookout for something that I hadn't seen, so that's part of the reason why I posted them on social media and uh, give people a chance to look at them because those are some special moments that you just don't ordinarily see.
1: And you're always very, very, very kind in giving credit to whoever owns that image. I don't believe you'll put a picture up without giving that photographer uh, his due credit. I know everybody in that field appreciates that courtesy. Well, I I, I
0: appreciate you saying that. Uh, Not all the times did I know who took the pictures. What I I do in lieu of saying who took the picture is say, this was taking, uh, give, give a description of where it was, when it was, and who this person was represented. Usually it was tops. But later on in the 80s, when there were additional baseball card companies coming out, it seems that everybody who had a camera was able to get credentials, get on the field to take some pictures. And before you knew it, some of the pictures that were taken ended up on, on some of the other card companies like Fleer or Donruss. So it was always an adventure.
1: One thing I do know is something happened that was very special on June 27th, 1980. And just take a listen to this.
0: Little number back to Royce. He picks it up. He's got a no hitter. Jerry
1: Royce, at 31 years old, has done it. A no hitter. He missed a perfect game only by an error by Bill Russell in the first inning. What a magnificent moment for the Big Blonde. Rick Sutcliffe throwing his arms around him. And all of the Dodgers, happy for their player representative, who put on a magnificent show. Jerry, how many times have you heard Vinny call that last out for you? What a memory in your career.
0: Yeah, that was, um, I I was very fortunate to pitch that no-hitter for the Dodgers, first of all. And to have Vin behind the mic and frame it the way he did coming into the ninth inning. Now for people who haven't seen the clip that I posted on my Flickr site, it's, it's a ball. It's a sight to behold because Ben is able to talk about the moment, capture it, give the date, give the, everything as kind of a recap as we went into the ninth inning. I did the rest with edits so that you could see at least one pitch for every one of the three banners that I faced in the ninth. And then I just let the camera roll after the final out was made and let Vin do what Vin does best. And that is describe baseball. You know, so for me, not only was the no hitter, but the entire ball, well, not the entire game, but uh, the final innings described by Vin Scully. That, um, that to me is about as good as it gets. You
1: can't, you can't dream that as a youngster growing up. You, it doesn't happen. That's Hollywood. Eight years earlier. Larry Boa broke up your bid for a no-hitter in the ninth inning. Can you share with us the heartbreak of that happening, coming so close? And how did you deal with it? How were you able to process it and get it out of the way?
0: Let's see. That was on 1972. I think it was just about – it was a day before I turned 23. So at 23, of course, I thought, well, there would be more chances for something like this. If I'm lucky, uh, only those chances didn't quite happen that way because uh, there were nights going into the fourth or fifth inning and you think, I'm on track for this. But something happens, a little bloop, a bump, or somebody gets on base and the next thing you know, you're trying to win the ball game and the no-hitter is flown out the window. Uh, But in that particular game at the Astrodome, it was the final game of the series against the Phillies. I was pitching that Sunday afternoon. I walked a couple of guys, but I had a high number of strikeouts, so the pitch count was up there. And in the ninth inning, I was well aware of having a no-bitter, as was everybody on the bench. There had been a couple thrown in Houston before I had gotten there. I know Don Wilson had one. Larry Durker had one. And there might have been one or two even before that. Uh, but going out there to the ninth inning, you know, the crowd was excited. We didn't get excited crowds like that. In Houston, in those days, even though it was a pretty good ball club, but Boa hit the second pitch just past the diving Doug Rader. And uh, Rader came up to me after the game and said, you know, I should have had that ball. I said, Doug, nobody on earth, nobody who's ever lived could have caught that ball. That was just past it. And and on the turf with Boa, uh, you can't cheat back too much because with a high chop, you're not going to have a chance to throw him out because Boa got down the line pretty well. But he just happened to get a fastball on the meat part of the bat, drove a past Raider, a double, and that was the end of the no-hitter. But uh, in style, I struck out two of the next three hitters, and at least I got a one-hit shutout. So I was happy about that. Interesting thing. Not many people know this. But the next day, Larry Durker, against the Mets, gave up a fourth-inning single, and he had a one-hit shutout, one of the rare times in baseball history that consecutive starting pitchers threw one-hit shutouts against the opposition. And I know it's happened at least one time since then, So, but it's one of those rare events in baseball history. And if you stick around long enough and you're fortunate enough to play as long as I did, you're going to be involved with a couple of these
1: things. You um, That brings to mind, you're the answer to a trivia question, I believe, is who is the major league pitcher that got two wins in the same day.
0: Yeah, that's me. I, I was one of a few that have actually done that. That I guess it was in mid-August, August 18th. We had run out of players in the regular game the day before the 17th. This is before. This is against the Cubs at Wrigley Field before they had lights. And games then were suspended at 6.45 according to late rules. So we got around to 6.45 couldn't play anymore. The umpire said, we'll finish it the next day. Well, Tommy pretty much used his bench. There weren't many guys left. So he told me, he says, you'll start the suspended game. And I said, what happens to uh, the regular start that I have after that? He says, let's see how the suspended game goes. So as luck would have it, I gave up one hit in four innings. We scored a run and I was able to make it good. So I got the win in the first game. Now, after the game, Talking to Paranowski, going upstairs to the clubhouse. You remember Wrigley Field, but you had to walk up a staircase to get to the clubhouse, which was on the second level. Right. And so, while uh, walking up the clubhouse, I asked him, um, "So, what do we do here? I've never, um, I've never had a game where I finished one game and then uh, started the next one. How do I do this?" He says, "How should I know? I've never done it either." <laughs> so, so I said, "Okay, I'll write this script to this one." Went upstairs, changed clothes, put on dry stuff. We had extra uniforms. About 20 minutes before the game, I went back downstairs and said, "Let's, uh, let's get warmed up. But I was still loose from the previous game, and it might have been the shortest amount of time I ever had to warm up before I started the game. Well, as luck would have it, the Dodgers came out, pounded the ball, and got some runs on the board. I gave up a couple, went five innings, and then a couple of relievers came in behind me, shut the door, And I got the win in that ballgame, thereby setting things up so that I could win two games in one day. Now, in 1984, while pitching for the Reds, Tom Seaver, no, for the White Sox, Tom Seaver did the same thing. But with Seaver, it was a long game, and it was 20-some innings, like like the game was in Chicago. And it also involved the White Sox. So Chicago is central to both of these. And Seaver was scheduled to pitch the next night, Tony LaRusso was the manager. He had run out of players. He'd run out of pitchers. And he told uh, Siever that he was going to pitch that inning uh, because the game was suspended. He came out, pitched that inning, and Harold Payne said a game, a walk-off home run. So Siever got the win in that game. And uh, he started the next game, I think, got into the ninth inning, and the Sox scored enough runnings for him, and Siever being Siever, pitched a pretty good ball game, thereby winning two games in one day himself. So if I have to be in company with Siebert on something, this is a pretty good one because it doesn't happen to too many guys uh, at all. When you think about it, it could have easily been two losses in one game.
1: True. Yeah,
0: you know, what do you do in a situation like that? You lose the first game, and then you have to go out there and scramble to try to win the next one. But uh, it was like having a head start. Uh, and a full we'll had of steam after winning the first game, as uh, like I said, the Dodgers came out, put some runs on the board, and then I got through five, and that set the set the table for winning two games in one day.
1: In today's, uh, I want to talk about music for a moment. If you have a moment, today's game, most every player has walk-up music to the plate. What would be your selection?
0: Oh, that's easy. James Brown. I feel good. <laughs>
1: Yeah, on, it's as on, simple the as that. on the money. On the
0: money. What else? What else is there? There is. There isn't another song that uh, that better describes when you walk to the plate. You feel good. I
1: I could see you walking out there with a cape, and then having the ball boy <laughs> yeah. come and remove the cape when you take a knee down at the plate. There, ready for the for the uh, at bat.
0: That's it. it could, hey, it it could have happened. And if you
1: had your camera, you would have been the one to capture it. You got it. And that along with you dragging the infield and, and Kenny Brett. Kenny Brett was with the Dodgers for only one year, but he was a partner in crime with you on a lot of uh, instances just the same as Jay. But I believe the first time you dragged the infield, that was the day that uh, Kenny was one that was with you. He, he was inspired. And he inspired made it do And the second – and the second one was with Jay. Jay, he went around to Diamond Vision, uh, camera guys in the wells and he, he tracked me down and made sure we all knew about it. Can you share the story about when you dragged the infield with Jay and, and, and how, um, how pleased Tommy was to see that happen? Yeah,
0: please. Yeah. yeah, yeah when Brett and I did it, it was a conversation we had in the and he comes up to me one day and he says, what haven't you done in this game that you'd like to do? Now, coming from him, that's a serious question. And I, I looked at him and I said, well, you know, I'd like to pitch a no-hitter, I'd like to get the World Series, maybe a couple more all-star games, play a long time. That's pretty much it. He said, those are lofty expectations. And I looked at him and I said, how about you? He looked at me right in the eye and he says, I want to drag the infield. I said, what? He said, yeah. He said, I'd like to do it tonight, and I want to know if you want to do it with me. And I thought of every reason why we shouldn't do it. And I looked at him and I said, what time do we meet? So we went down to the grounds crew, told them what we wanted to do. They looked at us like we were from Mars and said, you want to do what? But they found uniforms for us, put us, put them on, and we went out and dragged the infield. It cost us both $100 in fines to do that. And boy, we got a serious tongue lashing from the sword. Uh, and then when uh, Jay heard about it and he joined the club, one of the first things he talked about, that spring training says, I want to drag the infield with you. And I said, hey, okay, look, I've been there, done that. Uh, let's come up with something original. But the season dragged on and in September, this is of 1981. Or was it 1980? Don't really remember. It had to be. After Dino Vision, which was uh, the all-star game of 1980, so uh, we did that. And I didn't know Jay went around letting everybody know we were going to do it, but Jay's locker was on the other side of the room. I looked at him one day, he looked at me, and it was like telepathy. We knew we were going to do it that night. So went down to the ground screw, talked to him again, and <laughs> the guy at the ground screw, I can't remember his name, he looked at me and said, he said, you want to do this again? I said, yeah. He says, well, I got the uniform for you. There you go. That's what I equipped. I said, boy, it sure it's nice to work with professionals. So we were dressed right, went out there and did it. And, again, Lasorda was screaming at the top of his lungs, trying to stop us, but he couldn't do it. We got around on Diamond vision, and the crowd loved it. We put down the drag behind us. Went into the stands where we got a standing ovation as so we made our way back to the locker room. <laughs> well, we had to, we had to shed the ground screw stuff, put on our uniform, and then again, the sort of met us when we tried to get on the bench and just let us have it. Uh, this time the fine was 250. Then he finished the conversation by telling Jay, you're going to pinch it for the pitcher at the bottom of the sixth inning. So Jay went up. And wouldn't you know With the man on hit a pinch home run that gave us the lead and ultimately won the game. So as Jay Jay crosses the bases all the way around, everybody congregates near the home plate side of the dugout, giving high fives. Jay gets his hug from Lasorda who tells him, uh, your your fine is cut in half. And I said, what about me? Your fine is 250. Now sit down and shut up. And then – then the next day, Bud Frillo. Remember him? Bud oh, yes. Bud had this show. And I don't know how Bud did it. Uh, Bud was one of the funniest guys ever. One of the greatest guys you'd ever want to meet around the ballpark. And he used to walk around with these headphones with antenna. Right. It was, a damn, it was the damnedest thing I'd ever seen. And he was doing his show with a microphone in his hand. He had like a backpack to carry the batteries for everything. And he would interview guys, you know, just coming off the field. He had some time to fill for KBC, who did the Dodger radio. Well, for Bud, you know, this was like a gift from heaven. And he he got Jay and myself on this show, and we had to tell him the story. And finally, he corralled sort of, And, you know, Tommy, you know, had to answer for this thing, and he didn't want to bring it up. But Bud made such a big deal out of it that it was his whole pregame show. So after batting practice... Oh yeah, this is a big deal, and we're getting calls. And, and the next thing you know, Bud, while he's on the air, says he was telling Tommy, "says this is unfair. You shouldn't fine these guys for having fun like this." And what well, you know? What? Before the interview with Lasorda was over, people were calling in offering to pay the fine. <laughs> now I don't know how much money came in. Whether Lasorda got money or Jay got money, I know I didn't get anything. But Lasorda after a day or so, called us into his office. He says, I don't believe you guys. You do something like this. I got to find you that I'm the one that looks like the bad guy for doing this. But I'm going to tell you this. I'm going to wipe those fines clean. If there's any money, we're going to give it to a charity. If you get anything, be honest enough to give it to me and we'll make something good out of this. But don't do this again. <laughs> of course, we said, oh, Tom, we'll never do anything like this again. Trust us. So, that's the long and short
1: of that story. Jerry, real quick, Noby paid me one of the nicest compliments over the, the years, and he had my back, and I learned so much from that gentleman. Uh, but he gave me my my own locker, which was near the end of the clubhouse there, and, and it was next to Kenny Brett. And I remember like it was yesterday. It was the end of the game. Everybody had showered, getting ready to collect their stuff, get dressed and get out and meet up with their wives or get on the road. And it was at the end of the clubhouse uh where we were located. And he says to me, he says, Rich, he says, as he's getting dressed, he says, and he's facing the inside of his locker. He says, don't make yourself obvious, but look around the room and please let me know if anybody's keeping an eye on me right now. And so I did. And I said, well, what's up? Uh, and he says, who's looking? I says, well, uh, Royce is and, uh, say and maybe one or two others. And he, and he had a few choice words under his breath. Uh, but he thought it was funny. Well, what had happened was someone had taken his dress jeans, the jeans that he wore into the clubhouse and they, they cut them. They cut them all the way up and, 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 and he had strands of blue jeans. And he says, don't don't let him see you looking. And I says, oh, I saw what he had hanging on his hanger. And I says, Kenny, what are you going to do? And he says, I'm not going to give him the satisfaction. And he's standing there in blue and white boxers, striped boxers. And he says, you headed out? And I says, yeah. And he said, let's go. And he would not give you and the rest the satisfaction of knowing that you got him. He walked out of that locker. Past the wives and the fans and the people outside the door in his underwear, signing autographs, got on the elevator. We walked down on the, on that level out to the parking lot by the Dodger office. And one kid goes, Mr. Brett, Mr. Brett, you're not wearing any pants. And he's, yeah, I know. I forgot them. And it was, it was just that, that was the atmosphere of a ball club that had some terrific chemistry. And and that was, during that period, it, that seemed to be the, the norm with those ball clubs.
0: Well, it, it might have been. I wasn't aware of, it, of that. I, I didn't know that happened. But that's a good way. That's a that's a good story. And Brett handled the way that I would expect him to do it. Hey, you remember this one. How about this one? When we were in Atlanta, I'll give you the longer story because, well, it's your show.
1: Do you and take as long it? as you want.
0: We were in Atlanta, and Joe Beckwith, was from Alabama. <laughs> One of the first times Joe went back to Atlanta, all the people from Alabama come over. And at the Atlanta Hilton where we stayed, there was a big lobby. Tommy walked over and said hi to Joe. He met everybody. You know, At that time, Tommy remembered everybody's name. And, of course, he's, t- he's telling everybody the same old tired jokes. I went out to get something to eat, came back, and he was still there telling stories. So enamored that... Uh, these people were with Tommy that one of them who happened to have a pig farm said, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to be real nice to you because you're real nice to us. You'll get your, you'll get a gift when you get home. And wouldn't you know it when Tommy, we got back to Los Angeles, this guy had sent a pig in a dog traveling thing to Tommy that was in his office. So Tommy had a pig, a live pig in his office. What in the world is he going to do with that? Well, Eventually, I think they gave it to an animal shelter, Uh, but that pig was treated first class. I don't know who did this, but this is one of the funniest things I had ever heard. We're sitting on the bench. It's during the game, and it's during a hot time in the game. Now, there was a phone there, if you remember, on the bench, and I think Al Campanis was one of the people that had access to that line down in the dugout, but there were other people that did it as well, and I think it was security. Security calls and they ask for Tommy. Tommy's standing there and he gets this look on his face and he just shakes his head. And he says, you're not going to believe what the phone call I just got. And, they, and so it was Monty Basko who says to him, Monty was the bench coach, he says, well, what's it about? He says, you know that pig that was sent here? He goes, yeah. He said, well, somebody, and he looked at me, took that pig and it put it on the elevator and sent it up to the 8th floor where the fans were at the top of the stadium. <laughs> and they wanted to know what he, he wanted them to do with the pig. So they, he says, well, bring it back down and put it in its cage. He looked over at me and says, somehow I know you had something to do with this, but I'm not even going to ask. i got a ball game to manage. That, to me, was one of the funniest things that I had ever heard.
1: Jerry, I remember that evening well, and I had photographed the uh, shenanigans. In oh, his. did you? Do you, have, do you yes. have pictures of it? Yes, I do. Oh! And it was hilarious because they had this pig, and everybody thought it was cute. And Stu Nahan, uh, God bless his soul, uh Stu was in that group. There was a lot of the media. Um, and Tommy was down on his hands and knees on the carpet in his office. And they are all think this is the cutest damn thing going. Well, everybody thought it was fun until the pig got annoyed and the pig got nasty. And if you remember, the pig turned, and I don't know if that, that vinyl couch was the Don Rickles couch or the Frank Sinatra couch, but he took a huge chunk out of the cushion. It took a bite out of that thing. And at that point, all the fun and games were over. And he got nasty and everybody was fleeing out of Tommy's office or they were standing on chairs. They were scared to death of the damn thing and they didn't know what to do. And Mickey Hatcher, of all people, he thinks, what in the world? Why are you guys so afraid of a pig? He came in and just grabbed the pig up and hauled him out of the office. Where he took him at that point, I don't know, but he's laughing his butt off. And it was memorable. Well, Vin Scully got knowledge of what was going on. He was broadcasting during that game the shenanigans with the pig and where it was going. It eventually left. It left the stadium uh with EMTs. They took it and had him strapped down and and had him on a gurney in his case and 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 transported him to uh, a facility that they could, you know. That he would be safe, but yeah, that's a classic moment at Dodger Stadium, and I've got a great shot I'll send and share with you of of Mickey Hatcher hauling that thing out of there. But it was a classic moment.
0: Music. Maybe Nick was the one who put it on the elevator.
1: It could he could have been. Could yeah.
0: Yeah, that's a mystery. That's a mystery that may never be solved around Dodger Stadium. What well, you know, that ballpark is going to be there. In a, in a couple of years from now, it's going to be 60 years at Dodger Stadium. Well, there's you, a lot of stories around it. This could be one of the one of the great stories.
1: Jerry, do you ever stop and think about as beautiful a stadium as that is throughout all those years? That just as of this past year. It always had only two elevators in that darn stadium. That's unbelievable, and and it existed that way for all those years. Amazing.
0: Yeah, I'm, I can only remember one.
1: Well, they were they two. Had- there was two, two together next to, and they would hold.
0: That's right. You're right. You're and
1: right. they would hold one, uh, for the end of the game, so that the press, uh, the media would be able to, uh to get down and be able to be, you know, in in the clubhouse as soon as possible.
0: Yeah, there were two at the level five, the, um, the press level, right outside the broadcast booth. Right. And uh, they would, and that was they it. Were holding for Vin. They were holding for Vin, too, so that right. at the end of the game, after he did the wrap-up, there wasn't many post-game shows that he did toward the end, but once the game was over, Vin got on that elevator, his car was parked right outside the gate. He got in the car And before fans could even get to their car, he was out the gates and on his way home. Right. That's how, that's how you treat the best in the business.
1: Absolutely deservingly. So music research associated with music, where did you learn to write? You obviously love it because I, for years, I've been following your website, which is jerryroyce.com and part of your website. In addition to your photos that you have of the ballparks and and your photography, you have rock and roll stories and you just do and feature a particular song or a group and you do the background and the evolution of that song. I highly recommend it to anybody that has a chance. JerryRoyce.com. You can also access that website for his book and that's Bring in the Right-Hander. It's a phenomenal book. It's a story that makes you feel like you're sitting next to Jerry throughout his career, and um, the music is there available. Let's talk for a second about music. Is that a passion? Does that fill a void after your career? Why do you do it and and do it so well? Um,
0: When I was, let's say, five, six years old, I remember I was really young, my parents belonged to the Knights of Columbus back in Overland, Missouri. That's a suburb in North St. Louis. They volunteered to do the, the teen town is what they called it. That's when everybody who was in junior high school would come on a Sunday afternoon. I guess it was went from about 6 to 8 o'clock. Right? kids had to get back to class the next day. Uh, but for two hours they came and they danced to the records that were popular that day. So I'm always looking for something to do. Mom and Dad didn't believe in babysitters, so we had to stay active. And so I stood up there with a the guy who was putting the records on that the kids could dance to. And that's how I got to know what was what. And I became familiar because I took the request, gave it to the guy, he put it on the turntable, and that was it. That's when it started. But then about this time, American Bandstand became a national show from Philadelphia and they would feature the top ten, and, you know, for me, that it was right up my alley, so I would watch American Bandstand, and then in St. Louis on Saturdays, they had something called St. Louis Hop, which was a bit of a copycat show, even though it lasted a little bit longer, uh, but it interviewed local kids, and it went to different spots throughout the St. Louis area for interviews and whatever, and they uh, inter- interspersed music with the interviews, so uh, for me, that's where it began. Now, as a kid, I didn't have a whole lot of money to spend on records. Uh, so as I got older and had the job playing baseball, uh, buying the albums and then eventually getting to Los Angeles, where it was like a gold mine, that's when I found out that tickets uh, became a, a form of revenue in itself. Because with a couple of tickets to the right people, albums and CDs, which seemed to Uh, infiltrate into the clubhouse, into my locker. So that's when I began the collection. Uh, But as time went on, after I wrote the book, there was a bit of a void because I learned when I wrote the book how much I enjoyed doing the research. Uh, There were a lot of things when I wrote the book that I thought were true. But after taking a look at it through a couple of different sources, I realized I remembered it all wrong. And so with that in mind, I decided to write about some of the rock and roll songs and gradually put them on Facebook and it became, well, for me, a bit more of a passion because I could mix things that I was doing with photography and on online to put together the story of a particular hit, of a particular song anywhere from the mid-50s through the 60s. And I enjoyed doing that. But I haven't done it for a while simply because of, there's too many photography projects that uh, that I set aside, and, and uh, well, I'm doing those right now. I did the whole stadium suite of pictures that I posted on my Flickr site and uh, reconditioned them, and you look at them now in almost feel as if you were there. Now, you're working with the analog pictures, uh, with the slides and the negatives and the prints, You know how tough it is compared to what people can do now with the digital cameras. So some of the things that we took back then, uh, it takes a little training to learn how to bring those back into the way that the ballparks looked at that particular time. But most of my pictures are either, if they're not of me, they were taken by me of the ballparks that I visited during 1988 and in the year 1990. So a lot of those parks don't exist anymore, and that's where photography came in. But putting that together, the love of photography with the love of rock and roll and doing the research, you know, there's there's three elements right there that make writing these articles a lot of fun.
1: I had a chance to sit down with a photographer, Bob Busser, and he, he has uh, enjoyed photographing and documenting different ballparks across the country just major league ballparks and you as well. And I just, I I'm amazed at looking at these images because you are really going, you're allowing fans to go back to a different time in their life and remember. And it provokes so many good memories of visiting that ballpark who you were with, whether it was your dad or your friends. And those are moments that make up your life and, It's great to document it and have that available for anybody that would wish to visit.
0: Yeah, I know Bob and I've seen his work. I know he he started his work long before I started mine. But he's got colleges, football fields. He's got the insides of uh, ballparks, places that people just don't see. Mine, well, I, I did it while batting practice was going on. And it was always to an empty stadium. The only people that were actually there, if they weren't working out on the field, were the people preparing the field or getting the stands ready for the game that night. So it's it's the same ballpark, but a couple of different perspectives. Uh, you can find Bob's work. I guess he talked about it. It's online and social media, so you can see what he did. Uh, but for me, it was just those years that I decided to feature. After I did all of this, I thought, you know, it's a shame that I didn't get this inspiration back in the early 70s because there were some ballparks that I visited that no longer exist that I would have liked to have captured on film. How about Forbes Steel or Shy Park? Right. County Mac Stadium, that's one of the same. And Jari Park, where I won my first major league game. So all of those different ballparks, and I, and I thought about it back then, you know, I could have done a job on it. But that was then.
1: Right. And, uh, well, this is now, so. You had your priorities and we did during that period. We lived in a world of 36 exposures and you okay. just did not want to get caught shorthanded without exposures. So that was always a, a challenge to be able to manage and balance what you needed to record and capture and be able to have it available to you. Jerry, we talked about your 22 years as a major league pitcher. You were an all star twice. 81 World Series champion, and obviously the proud owner of a no-hitter. But one thing I didn't mention was, and this is a hell of an accomplishment, 220 wins. And that's something that, boy, to walk from the game and be able to talk and and show your resume, um, that's amazing. And it's been a thrill for me to have you on. You've been very generous with your time, and I thank you. And it's always nice to reconnect with an old friend. I'd like to close out by talking about your final game and the moment, if you don't mind sharing, because if I had an opportunity to be there, that's one game I wish I was there with a camera in front of me because I would love to have captured the moment. But you pitched, you were pulled out of the game, and I think instead of handing the ball off, you got a handshake. Would you mind sharing with the listeners?
0: Yeah, I'll give you the long story Uh, of it. 1990, at the start of the year, I was with the White Sox in spring training, got released, uh, signed a minor league contract with Houston, played double-A ball, triple-A ball. After a month, I was released from that. So it was back to playing Sunday ball in Pasadena, Brookside Park. And I was seen uh, by Ed Roebuck, who was a scout for the Pirates, who recommended me to sign with Pittsburgh. So they liked what they saw, and I threw a bullpen at Dodger Stadium just before the All-Star game when the Pirates were in town, and they said, we'll sign you, send you to AAA, and if there's a chance that we need you, we'll call you up. That's all I wanted. It was a good bullpen. I'll say that because it got me signed, and then I went to Pittsburgh, and at the end of the year, when uh, the AAA club in Buffalo, New York, was done, I was a September call-up, so it was kind of coming full circle, like I was in my first start with St. Louis back in 1969, as a September call-up. So with Pittsburgh, I pitched in four games, and I knew it was it. I was 41 years old, and I didn't want to go through this again. It was time to turn the page on an active career. So we're in St. Louis for the final weekend of the season, and while there, I told friends and family on that Friday night, that this was going to be it. I was going to retire. The next day, Saturday, an afternoon game, I told Jim Leland that uh, I was going to retire. And he said, well, thanks for being with us. I appreciate what you've done here. And I want to wish you all the best. Sunday, the Pirates won the National League, so I had a chance to go through another celebration. On Monday, we were back in Pittsburgh. We had three games left. Two night games with the Mets, followed by a Wednesday afternoon game to complete the regular season. So on Monday night, I called down, as was the custom, to uh, the pitching coach to ask if I could throw a bullpen. Uh, usually I waited till about the third inning so that I'd get some work in and I didn't have to be throwing on one of the mounds when Jim liked to make his uh, changes in the fifth or sixth inning with the starting pitcher. And so as I start to throw this bullpen, there's another phone call, and it's for me. And it's Ray Miller, the pitching coach, who um, said, you know, Jim, I'd like to know if you would like to start the game on Wednesday afternoon, the final game of the season. And I said, yeah. <laughs> what an honor that would be tell Jim thank you. He says, well, do your bullpen, get yourself ready. So I did. And um, on Tuesday night, as was Jim's custom, he walked around and visited as many players as he could on Tuesday, he made a beeline for me in the outfield. He says, you know, we haven't had a chance to visit much. And I said, well, you're busy. You've got a, you've got a lot of guys to be concerned with, with the call-ups and so forth. Uh, but I appreciate you taking the time. He, he paused. He looked at me He says, you're going to be okay for tomorrow, aren't you? And I said, I'm going to be fine. Uh, but I just want you to know, let's treat this the way it's supposed to be, with the dignity uh, that a game's supposed to have. If you see that it's not working, you do what you have to do. He says, well, I was going to do that anyway. So that was our conversation. And then uh, when I went out and started the game for the Pirates, got to five and a third innings. I was trailing three to one when he came out to the mound uh, to ask for the ball. And I stopped him. I said, Jim, I hope this is the only time you ever hear this. But I want to keep this ball. It was the last ball I ever threw in a major league game. He looked at me. He says, I don't care about baseball. I going to shake the hand of a man who pitched 22 years in the major leagues. And so I shook hands with him, and then I walked off the mound. That was it. And it was the only time that I did a curtain call, and it was, I can't remember, 27,000 that were there for a game that didn't mean anything, but it was my final major league start. So I got that standing ovation, went out with the curtain call, and uh, that is the way that everybody, Everybody who ever played the game should finish their career. When I think of all the guys that played for all those years and their final game and what they remember, a lot of times they were injured. Other times guys were released. Other times they couldn't get a phone call back. But here I was. I wasn't one of the all-time greats. I guess I'd be more along the line of one of the all-time goods. But I got treated like a Hall of Famer that particular day. By Jim Leland and the Pittsburgh Pirates, and ended my career the way that every major league ball player should.
1: And you did it in front of the fans, and you deserve it. De- <laughs> and you yeah. de- and you deserve every bit of it, Jerry. I thank you. It's been terrific to sit down, and I and I I thank you for the courtesy of the time. And we'll talk soon.
0: Rich, it was a lot of fun. Thanks for having me. And uh, and for sharing some of those highlights from back in the day, you know, on a daily basis now being out of the game for as a player for some 30 years and not broadcasting this year, I don't spend a good part of my day thinking about some of the things that happened in the past. But the conversation here today, well, we covered some ground that, to be honest with you, I hadn't thought about in years. So I thank you for having me here and for us to share those those positive memories one more time.
1: I appreciate the friendships that were afforded and uh, look con- look forward to continuing. You take care, Jerry. Thanks again. Thank you, Rich. And to our listeners, I say thank you. We'll look forward to next time.